0: Welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and I am really excited because today's guest is the icon, Kate Pearson. For those who don't know who Kate Pearson is, I feel like your musical tastes are highly suspect, but this is a safe space and I'm not here to judge. Kate is a founding member of the B-52s and an all-around amazing musician who has worked with everybody from R.E.M. to Iggy Pop. I traveled to Kate's studio in Upstate to record this a few months ago, and I'm really happy to be able to finally share this with you. She was about as warm and welcoming as it gets, and I'm still freaking out that we were able to make this happen. Before we get into it, I just want to say thank you to everybody who has continued to support us and for sharing this podcast with others. Thank you for helping us grow. It, it really means a lot. All right, I'll stop talking so we can get into it. Here's my interview with kate pearson thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it oh anytime this well, this this. this know, <laughs> now no like anytime except <laughs> anytime right now. right now <laughs> yeah not now i love least. this this space this space is amazing you've got like all of your posters and are these all just like wardrobes from past tours or is that the stuff behind me
1: oh yeah that's just some uh we actually have done some we did a video here for uh-huh. my record guitars and microphones uh my solo record
0: was that the one with fred armison yes yeah, yeah. so
1: we've done a couple of videos here that monica my partner monica directed so that's kind of our wardrobe stash yeah um well some of the clothes i'm trying to archive because i was when i was starting to put out guitars and microphones i was following the annie lennox Trajectory of what, she, how she was putting her record out, and she yeah. was doing all these like little, uh, li- just you know, little sort of vignettes uh, about mm. each song, and talking about how she, you know, what each song meant to her, and right. uh, and then she had on her website this amazing uh, archive of all her outfits from every tour on a mannequin, and you know, just like
0: styled really nicely, styled yeah. nicely
1: in photos, and I thought, she would love to do that, so. Uh, <laughs> I have some, uh, like the outfit from the very first album cover. Oh, wow. um, Which I just had in a show that was in Athens. They have this Athens, um, Art Rocks Athens thing. That's cool. They've had the past couple of years, so they had a a big exhibit there.
0: So do you still have a relationship with that town? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I haven't been there in quite a while, um, but there's been stuff happening there, like the Art Rock Athens where Fred Mm -hmm. went down there and did – Cindy and Fred did some of the B-52 songs, oh, and cool. I wasn't able to make it down because I was doing a solo show up here, but, uh, you know, I still love to go to Athens. It's such a great place. That's awesome. And I have some good, you know, long-time friends there. Yeah. Friends forever there.
0: I, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, you know, I recently was watching, um, I, re- I re-watched uh, Inside Out, the documentary.
1: Oh, <laughs> that was Inside Out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why do you think that that happened there?
1: I mean, there's really not an easy explanation, but, um, well, just about that film, for one thing, that guy was not there when, (laughs) you know, but I applaud his effort to do it. Well, yeah, because they filmed it in the 80s. Yeah, I can't remember when it was. All I know is I had all this Super 8 footage, just really great footage, and Mm -hmm. I gave it to him, and he put it in the film and sped it up and returned it to me all cut up in a box, like in pieces, so...
0: Sorry, I didn't mean to bring up a bad thing. No, but anyway,
1: whatever. It's in the film, so that's good. Yeah. At least, yeah, I probably never would have gotten it together to edit it. Right. But, uh, you know, I thought, um, well, Athens, I think because it's a university, that mm-hmm. was a big factor. And there's always this kind of split between, you know, there's the football and all that kind of stuff happening. And then there's the art students kind of thing. Right. And even though none of us in the band were really art students, um, and only Ricky and Fred went to the university briefly. Uh-huh. Uh, Fred went for two years to study forestry, and okay. when he figured out that they weren't really about saving the forest, but about managing and cutting trees down, you know, yeah. for hunting and stuff, he dropped out. He was out. But uh, you know, it just it bred creativity. I think all the art students and kind of uh, out fringe people, yeah. and it just it was just a, a strange brew and ready to you know sort of spread like a fantastic and so, I mean, <laughs> amoeba and it, did, and
0: it did and it's just it's, it's really cool because not nobody really sounded the same there was everybody was like kind of like their own
1: yeah that was the goal that was the goal nobody wanted to sound the same yeah. it was like wasn't like wow let's beef Jews did it let's imitate them right just how can we be as different as possible and right i'm still friends with love tractor and pylon and Oof. um
0: love tractor Oh man. So damn good. They were so good and so I love Pylon
1: and there has been yeah. some reunion. Yeah, they played this.
0: a couple years ago, right? Yeah, and I they
1: played at this Art Rock Athens of Pylon's kind of reunion. Right. Well, it's just an amazing place cuz even every time I would go visit, I mean, over the years, every time I'd go there something new and unexpected would happen, mm. just uh, a party and a and some kind of hit you know like some <laughs> some old like disused uh factory and it, you jump down these stairs and it'd be like someone would have a boom box and it's like this party crazy you know let's all go down to Stitchcraft, and they'll be like what <laughs> so you know something where I'd meet some new people or uh you know it's always interesting and there's always bands playing always right. new things happening so that's so
0: cool so just to go back um a little bit where where did you grow up
1: I grew up in uh, Weehawken, New uh-huh. Jersey, yeah. till I was eight, and then my family moved to Rutherford, New Jersey.
0: Okay, Meadowlands.
1: The, oh yes, the beautiful <laughs> Meadowlands.
0: And uh, what was it like growing up in New Jersey? Do you remember?
1: Well, Weehawken was great because yeah. um, my grandmother. We lived in, with my grandmother and her house, and um, it, it was right, right by the uh, the park where Alexander Hammond, Hamilton and, and
0: William Burr. Aaron Burr. Oh, Aaron Burr. Had their, oh, Arinbur, Arinbur. Yeah. Had their yes. duel,
1: and um, incredible view of New York City. Right. And she used to take me, walk me down there and we'd see these boats come in. I guess it was, you know, really big, somewhat of a port then. Mm-hmm. And there'd be all these big boats and it was very exciting living there. And and it was sort of like a, you would imagine um, when you see those old films of the the uh, New York City, you know, kids playing in the street. Right. You know, pl- kids playing, you know.
0: Like a stickball and just yeah, like yeah. the fire hydrants are open There's and There's like stuff. gangs yeah. of kids,
1: you know, all ages. And there were people from, I grew up next to uh, Gerard Schwartz, who's a pretty famous conductor now. Okay. He was a neighbor and there was a German, it was very eclectic. It was a kind of Im- second generation, you know, kind of Im- a lot of immigrants there. That's cool. So it was interesting uh, my best friend was Barbara Weisberg, who I'd love to find <laughs> again, but uh, anyway. And there's
0: Facebook, you know. I are looked, on I looked. Oh, you did? No, okay. But
1: anyway, not everyone's on Facebook. No. But uh,
0: Classmates.com? Then...
1: <laughs> hmm. That's awesome. Well,
0: yeah. It's worth a try. I'm just, I'm just throwing out some options all right, here. That's well, all. That's all. We'll you can do whatever you need to do. I'm just putting it on the table. It's there. Take it. Use I'll it. It's okay.
1: Google search. Yeah. <laughs> um, then I moved to Rutherford. After my grandmother passed away, we moved there. And <clears throat> that has a lot of trees. And mm-hmm. uh, it was beautiful kind of little town, but more boring than right. Weehawken. But, you know, good school. And, and then I met my friends who we started this uh, folk protest band called the Sun Donuts. Oh, wow. Great name. So we wrote our own protest songs, and it was going to be the Sundowners. And then there was another band called, the, you know, we were oh, we couldn't have the right. same name as another band, of course. But still, going to keep the sun. <laughs> so we changed it to the Sundonuts. So
0: I think that's actually a change for the better.
1: I do agree. And where would you guys
0: perform? <laughs> were you in high school at this time?
1: Uh, junior high. Yeah. And we we played at the Over Eighties Club. We, I'm serious. We we played at the over 80s club, and people looked really like unenthusiastic in the audience because they were over 80. But um, it it was uh, you know we played at school you know mm-hmm. school assemblies, mm-hmm. and we played at a couple of local uh, like battle of the folk bands kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you know I always knew I wanted to be a singer, a musician. That's I always knew that. Where
0: did that come from?
1: Well, my dad was a guitar player, and oh, he played cool. in a big band when he was young, and he always played guitar at home, and sometimes... When you uh, say
0: big band, like old-timey, like yeah, big like, band? Yeah, yeah, he was into, yeah, that kind cool. of...
1: Uh, he got he went on a big... Uh, he liked any music I liked, too. We would listen to music together, oh, but that's he so always cool. had... Um, you know, he liked the Tommy Dorsey kind of, all that stuff, but also great blues you know and mm-hmm. we had uh billy holiday and listened to all that stuff and mm. the cool stuff like Ema sumac and yeah. you know he had all that kind of cool loungy you know oh, the best like martin, winding and martin, martin denny. denny yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh,
0: oh. i love those records so much was it savage village or um anyway yeah yeah, they're yeah. so good savage something but. yeah <laughs> so <laughs> something yeah. with like a tiki head there's tiki heads in there somewhere i remember
1: my dad said oh my god this is you know record that blew his mind. It was that song. Is that all there is?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That was like um, I remember Christina. She did an awesome cover of that. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, remember yeah, that one? Yes. Yeah, so good.
1: But he, t- you know, he would turn me on to stuff, and I would. He would listen to my Bob Dylan and oh, Joni so Mitchell cool. stuff. Oh, so cool.
0: So you guys were really close. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So you're in middle school. You're in the anti-folk. Sorry, it was a folk group, but it was a like anti. Were folk you folk protest? Folk protest, right? Excuse me. <laughs> Anti thing wasn't a it was we were just protesting. Yes, okay. yes. Gen- My apologies. protest in general. Just general. And then um what um who were the people that you were looking up to at that time?
1: Uh Bob Dylan, uh Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm. uh Pete Seeger. Um I was into Delta Blues. Yeah. It's so funny, you know, New Jersey girl into, you know Right. Branny McGee and Sonny Terry and you know Mississippi John Hurt but they had uh Palisades Park had a folk venue and my dad took me there a couple of times and I got to see Mississippi John Hurt and Buffy St. Marie and Ramblin' Jack Elliott and some you know kind of classic because there was a folk revival then you know but I also was into the Beatles and obviously the Rolling Stones and all that kind of stuff too.
0: That's cool and um you know what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you, were you, you know, walking a straight line? Were you getting into trouble?
1: Oh, I was good. Yeah. I was so good. Yeah. Um, you know, my parents never had to, I mean, I, in the summer I was kind of bad. We had, uh, my grandmother had this summer, it was like a summer shack really. It had no heat or anything. It was in Lake Erskine, New Jersey. And Uh, My friends and I would sneak out at night Mm -hmm. and and just run around, you know, run around the lake. And we didn't do anything bad, but we would just, like, play and just run out at night. But, um, yeah, I was pretty good. And then when I went to college, all hell broke loose, and that's when the acid kicked in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where did you go to school? Um, I went to um, Boston University. Okay. And uh, I did a lot of, you know, acid then. That was, Mm -hmm. like, my favorite thing. (laughs) <laughs> well that's
0: where that's kinda like the home base of it, right? That's where like Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert and all those
1: guys. Yeah, were. I used to go to this uh the Boston Tea Party where the De- Grateful Dead were playing like weekly. Right. And um the Owsley acid would yes. be passed around, yeah. you know. And so uh <laughs> I didn't do too much of that, but I did, you know, my share yeah. of, of, you know, smoking pot and everything, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um did I think it was a mind-expanding experience because we did consider it to be? We never took acid like, hey, let's have fun. It was like, oh, oh, we're gonna drop, you know, and it's gonna be like, whoa, yeah. minds will expand, and they did. Gonna I mean, get I the th-
0: Tibetan Book of the Dead out.
1: Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was very uh, illuminating. Yeah. You
0: know? And and what kind of uh, what came out of that for you? Those experiences.
1: Well, to me, I mean, I guess I kind of got it. Set me off my path of determination you know which I had in high school I was going to be a singer and then I went to you know study journalism and I was going to be a journalist uh, because I kind of got off that the path of my true path of heart I guess Joseph Campbell would say um so I think you know it kind of disoriented me in some ways and in some ways it really locked me into a uh doing my path of heart, because after that, after college, I went to, uh, it was after Kent State. Right. I was over America. I was over it. Um, you know, I had believed that, you know, things were going to change, that there was going to be a sort of a revolution, not a, not a you know, a cultural revolution. Right. There was, and things did change, but, you know, not fast enough for me, so <laughs> I went, you know, I went to Europe, and I thought, well, I can't, I can't possibly go on unless I see the rest of the some of the rest of the right. world so I went to Europe with a friend and we hitchhiked around and that's during the time when everyone was going to Europe like it was on the cover of time magazine this girl with a backpack and
0: like college-age students from yes. America going out to Europe. Okay,
1: and I think that was the general feeling too. Let's leave America. This mm-hmm. is like you know, after Kent State, all this kind of disillusionment set mm-hmm. in. So you know, let's go to Europe. Yeah, and uh, it was very friendly too. Like there, people there are youth hostels, and people would take you into their homes and pick you up. And it wow. wasn't didn't seem dangerous, although I'm sure it was, uh, to some extent. But you know, and I wound up at some point traveling by myself through Ireland. And being picked up by somebody, a guy on a tractor, an old man on a tractor, <laughs> said, you'll never get anywhere. You're not going anywhere. You'll never get a ride. So I, and I really didn't really get much of a ride. But um, yeah. I wound up in this crazy <laughs> youth hostel alone in a really scary place. But it was just a real adventure. And, uh, you know, we went all over the place.
0: That's so cool. So what, what was, what came out of that trip? You know, where, what was your headspace after you'd kind of went out and seen some things other than what was in happening in America?
1: Well, I met my future ex-husband, Brian Cocaine, C-O-K-A-Y-N-E. <laughs> uh, and he was, he was from Manchester, England. I met him in Ireland. Okay. Because I sort of had run out of money and decided I had to, my side of my family, the McDermott's are from Ireland. So I had to go to Ireland. And um, I had just about run out of money, but I had to go there. So I wound up through just hitchhiking and randomly getting this ride going to Aranmore Island. Okay. And there I met the notorious Brian Cocaine. Brian Cocaine. (laughs) And we wound up, you know, getting together, and we eventually got married, but briefly. (laughs) um,
0: Were you like, okay, well, all right, I'm just going to live here in Ireland now. This is going to be my life.
1: No, because uh, my visa ran out, although in Ireland they... If you're American, you could kind of, they were just very welcoming. It's okay. almost like just stay. But, you know, we decided to go back, uh, decided to go to the U.S. And Brian very much wanted to explore the U.S. He had never been there. So we uh, he worked on fishing boats. He was kind of a poet. Okay. He was a very poetic spirit. He still like a, Like an Ernest
0: Hemingway, kind of like I'm, a, I'm on the ocean and I'm a poet.
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, not, that might be not, a little wrong with that, but. maybe not Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, but more of a uh, beat poet. Okay, <laughs> more of a Jack Kerouac. Okay, gotcha. So, um, anyway, he did a lot of things. He sold newspapers. He, you know, he repaired bicycles. He was worked on fishing boats, and um, he was on a bicycle trip when I met him. So, we went to America. We wound up through this sort of hand of fate. In Athens, just, it's a long story, but we wound up in okay. Athens, Georgia. you just, yeah, you, that's
0: where you were, yeah. And okay.
1: uh, he wanted to work on fishing boats, but anyway, a f- through a friend, we wound up in Athens.
0: Not too many fishing boats in Athens. No,
1: but um, someone said they'd give him a job without a green card, and uh, our friends were driving down there to hike the Appalachian Trail, and we, someone else said, I can get you a house, so we wound <laughs> up getting this uh, shack that had no running water, no heat, and it was... Uh, Out in the middle of a field, just like the love shacks, set way back in the middle of a field, a funky old shack. And it was a beautiful, it was just the most beautiful place, $15 a month. Wow. And it was outside of Athens, and it was on a farm, uh, Eloise Maxwell's farm, and it was just uh, idyllic. So we did a whole back-to-the-land thing. Yeah, what, we,
0: how, what would you spend your days doing at that time?
1: Growing vegetables and uh, riding a horse that someone gave me, this horse. And it was just, we rode bareback through the fields, and it was just idyllic. And yeah. we had goats, and we <laughs> milked the goats and made goat cheese, and it was fantastic. But um, And we had a wood-burning stove and a bucket to get go to the well, and it was yeah. just like this great adventure. After a while, though, I got tired of being really poor right uh so i decided i should get a job and
0: you came down from the mountain
1: i you know I, like out I, from the wilderness we rode our bicycles yeah. we had a truck after a while but we rode our bicycles into athens mm-hmm. and um it was about five miles and we didn't ever go into Ath- athens much except to go to the feed store you know or <laughs> the, the seed and feed store um and our neighbors were just our friends, the neighbors that lived around there. Claude and Alma lived across the street, and it was great. So, but then sort of poverty kicked in, and I began right. to really feel like I'm poor, right. even though it was by choice at first. It's funny how that can overtake you. Then you start feeling like other people realize you're poor,
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: you start feeling like you really are poor and that you can't get out of it. Right. So, um And I remember going to look for a job, and my clothes were kind of, you know, tattered, and I had a bicycle, and going for a job interview, I was like, oh, I'm poor. Yeah. (laughs) So I went, I got a student job uh, at the University of Georgia, setting up audio equipment, and...
0: Did you have a lot of experience in that area? No. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: Very unlikely candidate for that, but actually, most of it was sitting around in the office and waiting for these uh, conventions to, to, uh, it was the Continuing Education Center, so... They would have like slideshows. So I just you know run the slide projector while they told like math jokes and stuff. And people would be laughing. like.
0: And then you just ride um, back home at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah. And
1: at that point, I think I got my uh, Ford Falcon, Betty Ford. Okay. So, very cool. Um, I had a car. So I met the rest of the band then when I, I worked there. And I met my friend Robert Waldrop, who wrote the lyrics to Rome and a bunch of other B 52 songs. So we became friends, and then through him, I was introduced to, um, you know, just the network of friends, and I met the rest of the band.
0: But you met those guys while you were working that job?
1: Well, I met, uh, then I met my, our friend Jeremy Ayers, who was a big inspiration to us, and REM, actually, in his mm-hmm. sort of style and life, artistic lifestyle. Okay. Um, and then... Is he a painter? He's a painter and a writer. Yeah, and, um, Okay. He's just like a free spirit, someone who lives art in an artistic life yeah. style and lives his art. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I met the rest of the band. I met uh, Fred dancing at a party. I met Keith who was playing drums in another band and uh, just subbing and I met him. That's the first time I saw him. He was playing drums.
0: Well, what was that time like? Just like was everybody? Was it just exciting to kind of re-enter a zone where you're meeting people that are inspiring you and exciting you in a way?
1: Yeah, it was just fantastic, you know, going into Athens and meeting all these different people. And, it, you know, we formed sort of a greater sort of, you know, a social group. You know, we mm-hmm. were a lot like a, a gang, sort yeah, of, yeah, you yeah. know, of uh, uh, artists and different, you know, and have happenings. And, you know, when you're, Doing that, you think you're the first person to do that, like to you know, take all your clothes off and dance in the rain. Yeah. Like, whoa, we're the first people ever do that. We're doing it, yeah. But uh, it was just great uh, to, to feel that you know, freedom yeah. and uh, meet different people. So I met everyone in the band, and we one night just started jamming after having a flaming volcano. And there wasn't much to do. I mean, it was a farm town, even though the university is there. Right. It's basically, it was a farmer town. Um, farmer's hardware, the feed and seed store I Rant. mentioned, and <laughs> jazz feeds uh, but so. did,
0: but were you guys um i mean had you been making music before then or had you kind of put that aside
1: no i I kept playing you I did. always kept playing it I even got an old piano in my shack out yeah. there, and um so I still wrote songs and uh you know even in high school, I was always writing and and you know playing songs and playing guitar. Mm-hmm. So I still uh kept that dream alive, but at some point, I didn't know how that would happen and It just so happens that Brian and I went to this guy who was a psychic who worked at the health food store mm-hmm. he worked at the health- health food restaurant where fred worked okay and and we'd always hang out there and he put on a bear's like a bear coat like a head a bear head right and the whole bare body Mm -hmm. (laughs) bare behind
0: no i I know i know (laughs) know very well yeah
1: and and he predicted he said you're going to be famous for something and and brian was sort of instrumental in this Mm -hmm. and i could not even dream of what that could be yeah and just a few months later the band started but i had no idea like i thought what how can i be you know There's some people who say, I I want to be famous, but I
0: knew I always wanted this
1: or people say I want to be famous, but I have no idea for what. Right. But I knew I would like to be famous for, yeah, something being singer. But at that point, it didn't seem like I could link the two ideas together.
0: Well, what, what were the things that you guys bonded over that made you say like, hey, like, let's just try this out? Or was it something that was more casual?
1: It started, like, really by spontaneous combustion. I mean, it was never planned, which amazed me, because we went, you know, we we all played. Like, I still was playing, Mm -hmm. and I actually formed another little group in Athens, a couple of different tries at doing some different things, you know, and and Fred and uh, Keith experimented a lot, smoked some pot, and Fred would do his, you know, his uh, poetry, (laughs) and Keith would play experimental music, and Keith and Ricky did stuff together, and... Ricky and Cindy, they uh, Ricky wrote stuff and Cindy and he would sing and, you know, so everyone was already connected in this kind of web already, but we didn't know it yet. Mm-hmm. And this one night after the flaming volcano, we just went to jam at Owen Scott's house. Uh, and our friend Owen, who's now a clinical psychologist, went upstairs to write a paper <laughs> and we started jamming downstairs. Yeah. He's still a musician, but he's, you know, as, I uh, does that on the side but but anyway we started the band uh that night and we wrote a song called killer bees which we never recorded but uh fred then i guess we got together you know the next week and started jamming again and so the whole thing was set up that we would jam Mm -hmm. and write by jamming
0: that's cool um was there a thing do you remember at that time talking about things that you guys wanted to do differently or what you could bring to the table that wasn't kind of what you were seeing
1: no there was never any discussion about what direction we were going to take because we didn't need a direction because we all the mind meld that happened when we got together was so insane (laughs) and you know unpredictable and you know unexpected that I think we didn't need to say like let's try to be different because it just was it just
0: was that's cool. Do you guys think you egged each other on a little bit too, or maybe like pushed each other into the directions that it wouldn't have been, it, you wouldn't have maybe not have gotten to, like if it had just been like four of you guys doing solo stuff? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, we became, you know, like the five headed monster. Like we, it was a mind meld that mm-hmm. together we were something very unique that noth- no one could do on their own, really. It was just became something different than some of its, you know
0: yeah do you remember um, do you remember the moment when it started to feel real
1: i think we started working on um you know planet claire and rock lobster early on and it was very experimental still um and then it just when it really became real is fred told his friends uh julia and gray that we had a band Mm -hmm. and that we would play they said let's You know, can you play at our Valentine's Day party? Then it was real because we only had four songs. And
0: that was your first show?
1: Yeah. And so we had to write a few more songs, and we didn't know how people would react. So we played at their house, and we borrowed equipment, and it was on the bookshelves, like some, some, you know, speakers, and we had a little tiny sound system going. Mm -hmm. And literally... The house shook. I mean, our friends were all there, but they danced so hard that the house shook. We had to push. People had to hold the speakers onto the shelves. Oh, that's great. And uh, there were some pictures from that night, and we hung these Barbie dolls. And Cindy and I, Fred had mentioned to me that there was a look in the Diana shop, and in the Diana shop were these fake fur white wigs. I mean, pocketbooks, fake fur white Mm pocketbooks. So we turned them over fluff them up i got one for cindy and we wore these big white afros that were really pocketbooks uh so that gave us a certain look and from then on it was kind of like wigs wigs a go-go you know (laughs) just get get a funny wig from the thrift store and the aim was not like let's look glamorous or anything let's just be punky you know and and fun fun. fun yeah and dress really crazy and you know, it wasn't even let's dress crazy. It was like, let's find stuff in the thrift store that's interesting and fun. And, right. Um,
0: and it doesn't cost anything. Yeah. And yeah. so it
1: became this look. And I think that thrift store sensibility was, like you said, other small towns. had did it happen? It was happening in other places, too. I think like that kind of feeling of let's start a band, let's wear thrift store clothes, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: That's cool. When you guys like, were first starting to get noticed and you're playing outside of Athens, um, what was that experience like?
1: Well, our first trip uh, was to play at Max's Kansas City. Wow. And in,
0: and this is in the 70s?
1: This is like, we started on Valentine's Day, 1977. Okay. And we, the band started in 76. You know, we wrote the few songs, then we played in, in Valentine's Day... Party and then there were a few more parties and then Danny Beard, our friend Danny Beard, who has DB Records. DB Records. Well, he was he started that with our record with Fifty Two Girls and Rock Lobster, and he had Wax and Facts. He still has Wax and Facts records. It's it's a place in time. It's Mm -hmm. never changed. Like if you've seen the movie High Fidelity, they must have been there because it's just like that. (laughs) Um, And Danny's great, and he you know is really into It's, it's just. You hit vinyl gold when you go there. Oh, that's amazing. And it's in Atlanta. So he put out our record, Rock Lobster and 52 Girls, and we had no label, so he started DB Records. He put out the single, and that just took off as an indie <coughs> single. What, just,
0: b- back then, how would that happen? I mean, there's no internet. Was he just sending copies around we to... We sent
1: it to Bleaker Bob in New York City. Oh, wow. And that was like a big vinyl yeah. in- independent record store. And Bleaker Bob who we call bleaker blob, because he said, oh, I never got the records, you know, so Uh, I'm not paying you. Of course. So we went up to play, and there it was in the window, like, beefy juice, (laughs) you know. He had, you know, he had it there, of course. Well, what was that
0: experience like?
1: So it was, it was surreal going up to New York. Our friends came up with us, and we played in that dark, you know, Max's Kansas City uh, little stage, and it was really dark, and we had done a few parties in Athens, and Mm -hmm. We played, anyway. We played a few times, you know, quite a few times in Athens, just parties. Right. So playing for a real audience, like that wasn't just our friends, was very different. And there were some punk punk rockers, you know, leaning up against the wall, leather jackets, and they weren't gonna dance, but they did. Lou
0: Reed wannabes.
1: (laughs) People started just busting loose and dancing and throwing their leather jackets off and everyone yeah. started dancing and That's it was so just cool. it was great there weren't that many people in the audience but word spread yeah and we played with a bunch of other bands and it was kind of like almost like you know audition night
0: yeah do you remember who? do you remember who else was
1: it uh, I can't remember I, I mean I could look it up and find and That's I think fine. the no- who was playing um, I remember I think Lydia Lunch was there oh okay but um, I'm not. I can't remember right now. There we have little posters from that night. You know there are yeah. some existing. That's cool. Um, anyway, whoever was there was there, and um, <laughs> and we made like four, minus fourteen dollars or something. And we we drove up in uh, Croton, which is uh, Cindy and Ricky's parents station wagon that they loaned us so Danny went with us and he ran he said did you ask if they wanted you back and we said no no so we were going to drive straight back we went on stage and they even asked us to set the cut the set short right so we played like 20 minutes and we I think repeated rock (laughs) lobster or something and uh we got back in the car so he ran up and dear France the booker said yes we want them back so we came back Mm. and then we started playing CBGB's wow and then we start playing Hurrahs and then the Mud Club, and then what was,
0: what was that like? What do you remember from that? Well, the first,
1: that um, I remember the first time I realized that something was really happening was at Hurrahs, and someone did a video of Rock Lobster there, and I remember we looked out the window, and Ricky said, "What are all those po- people like? What's that line outside?" And they said, "That's for you guys to oh, get in." Man. We had no idea, so. We were getting really nervous about it, but um, and it was so crowded that we couldn't move off the stage. It was, like, really packed, and that's when I knew, like, something's really happening. And a couple of record companies, uh, Virgin, uh, you know, a couple of other people wanted to come down. They came down to Athens <laughs> to, you know, court us. Yeah. And, and our all we could think of is, well, how are going to take us out to dinner?
0: Right, and you're going to get <laughs> to go eat some nice meals. yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: But, um, you know, we just held off. We had a friend who was our manager, and she didn't really know, like, what to do, and nobody knew what to do exactly. And then when we were in New York another time, uh, Talking Heads, Tina and Chris, Mm -hmm. invited us to meet their manager. Okay. So we decided to go with him, or on trial, sort of, you know.
0: It's a tricky thing. It it's was a, it's a tricky turned thing. Turned out to be very tricky. Yeah,
1: he turned out to be very tricky. Yep. <laughs> but in any case, uh, you know, it all worked out. So um,
0: was the new was like when you look back on like that kind of late seventies, early eighties New York scene, like was it all that it was cracked up to be? Because like people kind of rem- you know, in my mind, I've read a lot about it and I didn't know a lot about it, but like, and to me, it just sounds like this really amazing thing that i you know i don't think i ever really got to experience anything close to that i mean but is that just like people just remembering it with like rose colored glasses kind of a thing well
1: partly i think i mean we didn't live there so we would come up when
0: you come to visit though yeah when we came
1: to visit it was really cool because we'd sleep uh uh steve master in the mud club would have us uh Stay in Brian Eno's apartment while he was gone, and yeah, okay, we like so,
0: yeah, that's as cool as it was. yeah. That's, be. Okay,
1: <laughs> you know things like that, and <laughs> and meeting. We did this Nova convention where Patti Smith played, and William Burroughs was there, and you know, uh, it, it you know it was it was amazing. David Bowie came, yeah. and Frank Zappa, and
0: uh, yep, okay, yep. So it was as cool. So there it okay, was great. cool. Yes. Okay. Good. Good to know.
1: <laughs> you missed it, but I missed it. I just think any time when you're when you're younger and there's this energy happening, and we kind of missed the, you know, even the first punk, in a way. I mean, we we're right. still there, but like the very first when Patty Smith first played. But mm-hmm. we got her very first record called Piss Factory, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we saw her. She came to Atlanta, and we went to see her show, and it was her first, you know, kind of tour. So we did s- see it, but we weren't, you know, like when Talking Heads first started and everything. So that was like one thing, and then mm-hmm. we were at New Wave, whatever that means. Right. Uh, but yeah, definitely the energy was there. You know, we went to clubs with Devo and it was just like, oh, it was so cool. it was exciting. Oh,
0: man, that's so awesome. I was recently rewatching some like old Devo performances on Saturday Night Live. I just can't imagine. I just feel like, you know, like when you guys were kind of playing and stuff, it was just like blowing people's minds. Like they just had no idea what to do because they had never seen anything like that in a way.
1: And we didn't realize that that we were that different because we you know we were in our little Athens vacuum in mm-hmm. a way. I mean we experienced that coming to New York and we'd stay there for a week and play and, and like this
0: is fun and then you just go back home and Yeah and then we'd work on some more songs yeah.
1: and stuff. I mean we were committed because we'd go back and write more songs and then we'd go back to New York and play, you know. So we had I mean Ricky had a very good focus like he had a 5-year plan. <laughs> Uh, what? <laughs> whatever that was. <laughs>
0: what was the you know what was the what was the moment like when, you know when you're like okay we're gonna sign with a major label and we're gonna like we're gonna do this.
1: Well, that really took off in a you know in the usual young band way. Like let's we're just so excited to be signed and be musicians mm-hmm. that you know whatever like just sign your name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, it wasn't a bad deal with Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers was very good to us. They never ever questioned like, I guess they figured they're so weird we're not going to tell them what to do because they got great. something happening, yeah, <laughs> and we don't know what it is so but uh, the people at uh Karen Berg and Steve Baker, they were just great uh you know, they didn't always promote every record we put out, but I think they were in general you know a good record company to mm-hmm. be with, and our manager was kind of like old school. You know, trying sometimes to manipulate us. And, and you know, <laughs> the contract was really, it was, had this sunset clause that you basically have to pay him forever. Oh, wow. You know, so that was not good. But, you know, on the other hand, he had some good points. So, uh, you know, he really believed in us. Right. So, uh, you know, it was just being signed, it was just a whirlwind because one minute we were just, had, Barely enough money to buy the newspaper we right. were in, you know, New York Rocker or something. <laughs> yeah. It was like, well, we can't afford to buy just one copy. And then we were whisked off to the Bahamas and, uh, you know, recording at Compass Point with. Uh,
0: was it Chris Blackwell? Chris
1: Blackwell, yeah. you know, my God, it was just it was just incredible. That's wild,
0: and then you but you were still able to like stay yourselves. Like, you still, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't a thing where, you know, sometimes a lot of people, when they get a little bit of hype, like, they just, it just makes them crumble. Whether it's, like, internal battles or, you know, um, internal struggles with, like, how am I going to keep this going kind of a thing.
1: Well, I think early on, we made a decision to share everything Mm -hmm. equally. Yes. So, that helped a lot, I think, you know, because have. St- I mean, we do write almost everything together, but right. there were a couple of songs like Rock Lobster, which basically was Ricky and Fred, and then Cindy and I added the, you know, the harmonies and mm-hmm. the other parts. And Keith is always very instrumental in everything. Um, and Keith and Ricky were like co-writers in a lot of things, but um, and and Keith always tells the story that Ricky he came in and Ricky was playing something and he said, "I've just written the dumbest guitar part ever," and it was down 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 na 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 but, um, you know, just g- Chris Blackwell producing, uh, his idea was you, he wanted us to sound exactly like we sounded on stage. Okay. And I played guitar on 52 Girls. And um, so, you know, I played bass, keyboard, and keyboard parts. So he said, I want you to play your parts and play the guitar, and Ricky play, you know, everyone play what they play. And. We did that, and we were so disappointed when we heard that record because we thought we just we <laughs> thought we'd sound bigger and better, but we sounded just like we sound. Right. Which was a great move on his part because we had a unique sound, and you know he wanted to capture that. And so that was like a yeah. genius move on his part.
0: That's cool. Um, as somebody who makes music videos in modern times, what was it like to have budgets to make music videos? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I know what it's like to make one without a budget. When uh, I,
0: I know. <laughs>
1: uh, I mean, when I did my solo uh, record, Monica and I did the uh, video here. Yeah, and it was it was great. It was much more fun, really. Of course. But uh, well, there's a
0: lot of waste when there's a lot of money. Oh yeah. You know?
1: And you know, speaking of that, just like going to the Bahamas, and you know, we rented houses there, and we. Uh, we were in Chris Blackwell's studio, and he was the record company, and he was the producer, and he was. Uh, we rented uh, the studio and his houses, and uh, oh, later we found out that we were charged for a tambourine rental per day, <laughs> you know, any little thing. That like, the line know, it item. Was like, yeah.
0: <laughs> tambourine rental. Yeah. That's how they get you.
1: <laughs> yeah, and all the other little things, you know, so uh, microphone, you know, covers, whatever. <laughs> But, you know, it's all kind of a rip off the band, you, you realize later, but you just, you know, it's exciting and you're doing it and it's like, that's all you care about, really, is get your music out there. Um, you know, doing the music video was the same. It was just like, you give someone a budget and it's just, whoa, <laughs> you know, out come the, People got their the hands dancing, yeah. you know, bears. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I think, you know, doing the Rome video and and the Deadbeat Club video, they were really good experiences. those were great videos. um, They were really good videos. And it was a time when, you know, videos were, like, viewed more on MTV Mm -hmm. and stuff. So, uh, you know, it was important. And now looking back, there, you know, there's a little video of of Rock Lobster, and and that's really cool to see all those old clips and stuff. And even the downtown cafe where we played, someone did a – a little video of that, and it looks great oh, to see cool. that you know, and see the people dancing in front. But, but those videos having a budget, it was, it was, it's great though, yeah. what you can do.
0: I know, I would not,
1: you know, the waving sheets and the blowing your hair with the big fan, exactly. <laughs> There's money for props, yeah, yeah. But you know, I think our videos turned out really well considering all that,
0: uh, uh, yeah, that's cool. Um, You know, you touched on this a little bit before, but why do you think that, um, you know, working with friends is really tough. And why do you think you guys have been able to do it for so long?
1: I guess because we decided to share everything Mm -hmm. and that we write a lot of it collectively, which is some ways torturous because, you know, you have to compromise and it's, uh, you know, but, but when we jam, it's not conscious. It's it's going into the collective unconscious or something you know so when we're jamming it's not like we try to just sort of tune out and get into a trance so it's not so much like what are you doing you know and I mean of course you bounce off each other at some point you have to figure it all out put it together uh but you know it's also Keith would uh Keith and Ricky would write the instrumentation and after Ricky died Keith did all the instrumentation Mm. and um and then the Fred and Cindy and I would write the melodies, harmonies, lyrics, all that. You know, but Keith would help. We would all work together in picking out the parts.
0: You guys took a break after that, right?
1: Yes, yes. A long, pretty long break. In fact, we didn't know if we would continue. Really? But, um...
0: What made you decide to get back together?
1: Well, we just kind of took a lot of time off, and then we realized, like, this is a real precious thing that we have. Mm -hmm. It's just... And we have each other. And in a way it brings back Ricky's memory and his spirit to do this record you know to do Cosmic Thing really was a lot about healing I think that's what it was really you know we were all devastated and that helped us heal to write that and songs like Deadbeat Club and things that conjured when we were back in Athens that was a a healing experience to write that
0: that's amazing Um, you know you've done many many collaborations which when you think of them which are the ones that stick out to you the most
1: well definitely candy with iggy pop right and rem playing Mm -hmm. with rem i mean rem was in both cases i mean don was was uh don was was don was was (laughs) (laughs) and he he produced a cosmic thing and good stuff along with Nile rogers they each did they split production.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: Production. So it was just because of timing, uh, time constraints on their part, that we had to use two producers, which turned out to be amazing. Right. So we did it again. <laughs> Good stuff. But um, oh, where were we?
0: Oh, no, I was asking. You, <coughs> you were talking about um, working with R.E.M. and working with Iggy Pop. Oh,
1: yeah. Um, Don was was producing Iggy Pop records, so uh, he. I'm sure he suggested me to Iggy Pop. But that turned out to be so great because he just said, Iggy Pop said just do, you know, add your harmony, do here's the verse, mm-hmm. uh, you can change it or you can, you know, do whatever. Yeah. So I just did my thing and it turned out, you know.
0: Yeah, that song's so great. Really good. And yeah. I love
1: that song and um, when well, my solo shows that I've been doing, I I do that song oh, and that's I just awesome. kind of integrate it into a, sort of a one person thing. Oh, that's so uh, cool. But also working with REM, it was the same thing. They sent me the songs and then they just said do your thing. And nobody micromanaged me or said, you know, we suggest this harmony or try this, try <laughs> a fourth or you know, yeah harmony. They just said, Go for it.
0: I like what you do. Yeah. Come do it with us. Exactly. That's the dream.
1: I love I love R. E. M.
0: That's great. Um how did it feel putting out a solo record this year?
1: like the best thing I've done you know in a long time because was it something
0: you'd wanted to do for a really I'd long time I've wanted to do
1: it for so long and I just you know I was my own worst enemy and not doing it I mean I tried I I wrote a lot of songs I did I even toured and a little you know and wrote did performances at Joe's Pub with mm-hmm. the, this group called the Chanteuse Club where we'd work out new songs and it was oh, cool. Gail and Dorsey and I we just uh, Maggie Moore started it and there'd be different guest people but That's cool. we would you know every time we do that I'd write a new song and it was basically just uh, us with playing you know with piano or guitar just accompaniment mm-hmm. so kind of bare bones and fleshing out new songs so that was great but I just never the B52s then started we started doing Funplex and I just got uh there were a lot of sort of management issues too like oh you can't I mean they don't want you to do solo stuff so um you know, but it's really all my fault. My fault, or it's not a fault, I guess. But I just didn't it do it. It was all. It. it was on you. It's my. It, it was my yeah. responsibility. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't do it, and now I've done it. So it's great. Yeah, it feels good. It feels good to finally do it, and you know, you can't look back and regret. It's just like it is what it is, and I'm just so happy that it, I. I think it's really good, and it turned out great. Mm-hmm. It got great. Um, critical acclaim and I I really want and I enjoy playing it and I've had great musicians to play with and local friends up here that I've been able to play with Mike and Ruthie and uh, Connor Kennedy and uh, his band so um, it's been a great experience in doing the videos and also doing that videos with my partner Monica for her, her directing the video and doing the album The CD cover, she did the photographs and the cover and everything, and we worked together on doing the booklet and all that, kind of being more hands-on and doing it yourself is just, uh, and it's through Cobalt Label Services, so they've been great. That's Um, cool.
0: Do you like collaborating with your partner? Do you like having that kind of intimate relationship that also kind of extends to, to other areas?
1: Yeah, because we do Lazy Meadow together. I mean, she really runs it, but we started that together, and so we've had a collaborative relationship since the beginning. Of our relationship, so it works out really well, and it I think it brings us closer.
0: It's so funny because as my my next question was going to be, um, <laughs> how did you you know how did you end up creating a mini hotel empire? Where did that idea come from?
1: Well, that wasn't the idea, but <laughs> I was just driving along, and I thought you know it'd be a great investment to buy this old hotel, and wouldn't it be fun to theme the rooms and just decorate? And oh my God, what a great time it would be! And then, you know, when I bought it. Then I realized there was all this infrastructure to do. There was oh. renovation and water treatment because it's on the Esopus Creek. Of so we had to do a whole water treatment thing. It's septic, and and,
0: and the great thing is contractors here are really reliable.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I've got to come in at eleven, and then I have to have lunch, and then I have to pick up my kids at two. You know. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's, it's even worse up north, like, you know, a little north of here, like, you know, trying to get people to do work.
1: Well, luckily, we found some good contractors yeah. and, uh, you know, that's some different people here and there. It was just definitely piecemeal. Uh-huh. But little by little, <laughs> I started, you know, renovating and, um, you know, finding some, uh, trying to find like Boomerang, Formica and looking for, uh, luckily, I had a lot of stuff in the waiting in the wings, you know, to put there like tchotchkes Mm -hmm. and different things I'd collected, but not really furniture so much. So there was like a license to ill. I just went up and down (laughs) route 28 and there were a lot more secondhand stores at that time. There Uh was like auction and a couple of other places that were good. So I would hit them and find just treasures. And and then Monica, I asked her to help me because I was just getting mired in, you know, that I was great with the decor. um, But, then would have got into, like, how do I run it? How do you, you run know? it? How do you and, book it? Update and also, a booking calendar. <laughs> yeah, also with the contractors and getting it finished. Yeah. It just seemed like the project that would never end. So she really, like, got it together. She I, had done uh, the Woodstock Wool Company in town. She oh, had cool. renovated this building and, and started this wool company with some partners. And she eventually, they bought her out, and uh, she, you know— but that was her reason to kind of stay <laughs> up here. She wanted to have a business. So, right. and were you guys together out. at that? Point? Yeah, we got together after you know we worked together. You worked that. together, and then you got then together. we got together. Oh,
0: okay, that's great.
1: So, uh, so she really helped make it a business, and she runs it now. Uh, she really runs it, the whole thing, and that's we great. have a, two people, you know, a few staff working there that hold down the fort too.
0: What uh, and uh, and you opened up one in the desert recently, out west.
1: We had floods here, so right. Uh, Dur- was that during um,
0: <coughs> not Sandy, Irene, 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 yeah. Irene, yeah.
1: That was the first big flood, and we were at a John Hammond, Jr. concert in at in, in Athens, yeah, in the town of Woodstock, and it was pouring rain. And Monica was like, "I have an instinct. I've just got to go to Lazy Meadow," and the water just like rushed up. Oh man! And uh, flooded the airstreams. Luckily, it didn't get to the buildings, but. Um, so Philip and Scott are friends who had decorated some of the airstreams that we had hired them to do mm-hmm. the decoration. And then Monica and I did a couple ourselves that we sort of masterminded. She had an idea for Kate's hairstream <laughs> and planet air. So
0: it could go on forever. We yeah, had ideas. these, you know, yeah. all great themed <laughs>
1: airstreams. And the rooms wound up not being themed so much as just all decorated in a different way, all the rooms at Lazy Meadow. But um we decided we'd move them after a couple of floods and renovations. Where's the driest place? Yeah. And uh, Philip and Scott had moved out to Landers, California, in the desert. So we decided. So to. Landers,
0: that's right around Joshua Tree area. It's right? six miles from Joshua okay. Tree. Yeah, yeah.
1: So they said, like, move them out here. So we were visiting them, and their neighbors were selling land. Right. So we bought the land, moved the airstreams out, and started Lazy Desert.
0: It's great over there, too. Uh, is Landers, is that where, like, the Integratron? Is that in Landers? It's right next to the Integratron, yeah. Your space is next to the Integratron? You could walk there, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, you can
1: see it from Lazy Desert. That's amazing. That's an amazing place.
0: So you know how there's, like, big rock a little bit farther? Giant rock. Giant rock, excuse me, yeah. giant rock.
1: I think it's giant rock, yeah.
0: I was there one time, and I was wearing, like, little cut-off shorts. And all of a sudden, this, like, Jeep just comes over the horizon. And I'm looking at the Jeep, and it's, like, a little child driving a Jeep. It must have been, like, seven years old. This was like 5 years ago. It wasn't
1: like a one of those four-wheeler things.
0: It might have been one of those things. Yeah, and like, like there's a, like a 7-year-old kid driving it and like his uncle is in the car just like drinking and like
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah.
0: And then like I got up and he saw that I was wearing these little cut-off shorts and he was just like, "What the fuck are those?" And I was just like, "Uh, we got to go."
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's an it's an interesting mix of people out there because yeah. there's military people and then what they call kind of tweakers, you know, yep. and you know people, people who are on, hiding from some things yeah and then there's people you know people just want to relax yeah and then there's you know artists a lot yeah. of artists and and musicians and a lot of interesting people there yeah but um d- that giant rock there's a legend that when that cracked supposedly this native american legend that when it cracks that's the end you know uh-huh. the end is near so it cracked kind of recently but you know
0: but we're still here. The
1: end is always near, the right? The end is always near. But um, it's an amazing rock formation, and supposedly, the according to the Integratron history, mm-hmm. uh, Howard Hughes took a great interest in this building that was built by von Tassel, and he was a, an interesting scientist who basically got his blueprints from the aliens to build this building that right. would recalibrate your molecules and it's like it's a the u-
0: highest concentration of energy exactly in the, in the area
1: and so howard Hughes was interested in this and he would fly in in his plane and give this guy a bag of money and then go to Von Tassel's wife had a a, a little uh, diner i guess by giant rock mm-hmm. and he loved her pies so <laughs> he would go there and eat pie That's so amazing. anyway there's lots of legends lots That's of aliens great. there's aliens there there's just uh you know, incredible star viewing. They have the Riverside Astronomical Society. uh has star parties on New Moon. Oh, that's cool. So that's a, another attraction. And there's Joshua Tree and the Integratron where you can do a sound bath.
0: Pappy and Harriet's. Pappy
1: and Harriet's. Such a great venue. Wanda Jackson's played there Really? Week, yeah.
0: Have you ever played at Pappy and
1: Harriet's? No, I want to. I really want to play gotta there. you got to play over there. I know, I've got so to play fun. there.
0: That's awesome. Um, two more questions and then we'll be done. Um... What, what are the things that keep
1: you going? Well, I think uh, always doing new projects. Mm-hmm. And I do enjoy, like the B-52s have been very active. We did uh, three nights at the Hollywood Bowl with the L.A. Not the L.A. Philharmonic, but the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. That's amazing. Uh, Symphony, or whatever you call it. That's such a classic um, venue. And it's a beautiful venue. And, and uh, uh, David Campbell, who's Beck's father, who's a famous orchestrator. Oh, okay. Um, he... Orchestrated Rock Lobster, Planet Claire, and uh, Love Shack. Mm-hmm. And so that was the finale of their season, and they, they coordinated fireworks to the uh, Love Shack. <laughs> orchestration and it was just mind blowing we couldn't see them but we saw a video of it afterward yeah. but the orchestration was beautiful it was really really great so, so cool. now we're having some more songs uh, he's going to orchestrate some more songs oh, so wow. we're going to do a stint at the Nashville Symphony with the Nashville Symphony Oh, that's awesome so that's really exciting and we've been doing some you know different things uh, the B52s we were on that show the best time ever with Neil Patrick Harris oh, which yeah. is a real trip and that show
0: seems like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it was really fun doing that. And so we've, you know, I just did a uh, the Mud Club reunion uh, benefit for the uh, the uh, Bowery Women's Project mm-hmm. mission, and I sang a couple of songs with Pat Irwin, who used to be our keyboard player, at the B52s, oh, cool. and that was really fun. I did "52 Girls in Rome," and uh, Lenny Kay also played, and they had a brummage sale, <laughs> and I bought. A, Couple, Fred donated a bunch of stuff, and I donated a wig and some things. Oh, so, so cool. It was fun to see some old friends and get together, you know, kind of have that old Mud Club reunion. Steve Mass, who started the Mud Club, was there, wow. of course. it's great. So, um, you know, th- what keeps me going, though, I think, is just doing new things. Like definitely my solo record and playing solo shows has revived. You know, it's just a breath of fresh air to play new songs and playing with friends up here and uh doing some benefits i did a benefit up here with the school of rock oh okay uh, kids and that's fred armison who's a friend now and he came up and did it too
0: that's awesome and it
1: was a blast
0: that's great um kate pearson thank you so much for everything thanks for your time
1: thank you all right thanks for coming up to the studio